Man, Jay, Trish Tilby is kind of a jerk. Whatever happened to that nice librarian Beast used to go out with? Do you mean Vera Cantor? You know, it's never very firmly established. I'm not sure she actually showed up after that X-Factor arc where she was briefly mind-controlled. At least she was cool with mutants. Although that leaves me wondering, when did she find out Hank was Beast anyway? Did she know he was a mutant when they were dating way back in the Silver Age? I mean, she must have, right? What with all the acrobatics and swinging from rafters? Oh, gosh, no. She just thought he was... A gymnast? A really zealous Tarzan fan. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 306 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us explaining the actual X-Men. We already checked in with adjectiveless X-Men after Age of Apocalypse, and now we are back here with Uncanny. That means that after this one we've, what, only got two series left before we're fully checked back into the 616? Exactly. Before the cycle is complete and the grand conjunction may occur. Ooh, but that's not counting the Cable and Wolverine solo books. Or X-Man, but eh, who counts X-Man? I'm sorry, Nate Gray. It's just, you're so much fun to make fun of. I have nothing against you. See, that's why I count X-Man. Because, on one hand, yes, we choose things based on who's actively affiliated with an X-Men team, but on the other hand, we also choose books based on what we feel like talking about, and... I'd really like to cover at least some X-Man. Okay, we should cover at least some X-Man, even though I can just sum it up by... Aw, Nate Gray. That was a terrible decision. What if we just had an episode where we just listed all of the things that he broke over the course of the series? I think that would have to be like an entire month's worth of episode. It can just be, you know, it can just be a second we pick up, we do, you know, a minute or so of it every episode. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nate Gray making bad decisions. <sighs> Anyway, we're not talking about X-Man, we're talking about X-Men. Multiple Nate Greys, or something. Let's talk about what happened previously on X-Men. Not too long ago, the world ended. And the X-Men knew it was coming. Rogue and Gambit plot-crossed lovers who had never been able to touch due to Rogue's uncontrollable touch-based energy-draining powers, decided to take advantage of this consequence-free lowercase-a apocalypse, and finally kiss. Which was cool and all, until the world turned out to not have ended. And now Gambit's in a coma, and Rogue has skipped town trailed by her worried buddy Iceman. Rogue and Iceman may be gone, but the X-Men have a new member. That's right, Cannonball. Originally of the New Mutants, most recently of X-Force, has graduated to full X-Man status, and he seems pretty pleased about it. Wolverine, meanwhile, has come back to the mansion after riding Solo for a while. Or at least he's come back to the yard of the mansion. He won't go in for as long as Sabretooth is living there. Because Sabretooth has been captured by the X-Men and Professor Xavier is attempting to rehabilitate the villain. For his part, when he knew that the world was about to end, Wolverine popped his claws through Sabretooth's brain, which has left the villain apparently regressed to a preverbal state. Long before all of that, though, the sewer-dwelling Morlocks, non-human passing mutants who had retreated underground to avoid humanity's bigoted bullshit, were all killed by Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus's supervillainous brother. 
That was the second time that the Morlocks had been, well, at least largely wiped out. The first was actually the first X-Men crossover ever, or at least the first X-Line crossover event, the Mutant Massacre, during which the majority of them were slaughtered by the Marauders. Well, apparently some are still around somehow, because Callisto recently showed up alive and ten years older, as did Marrow, a grown-up version of a little girl Cable met not very long ago at all. As for the other X-Men, who have merged their gold and blue teams into one that pretty much just bops back and forth between X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, they're mostly doing okay. Mostly. So who's in the lineup really quickly before we jump in? Okay, so aside from the folks we mentioned, we also have Cyclops, Phoenix slash Jean Grey, Beast, Archangel, Storm, Psylocke, and Bishop. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 322, Dark Walk. This is written by Scott Lobdell, whom you can hear more about in episode 303 as we discuss him and a number of other writers in this era. I would recommend going back and listening to that if you hadn't. Penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Mark Pennington, colored by Steve Buccolato, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I kind of dig Grummet's art. I mean, Tom Grummet is a fill-in artist, and he's done a great deal of fill-in artwork, but it's a little bit John Romita Jr., it's a little bit house style, and it's very clean and coherent storytelling-wise. Yeah, I really like it. I actually, I, I think two of the three issues we're looking at today, they each have different pencilers, are really, really solid. The third's a little iffy, but this is this is one of the good ones. The cover of this issue, though, asks in big letters, Who Stopped Juggernaut?, and somehow the way it's staged implies to me that this will be some sort of fun Slylock Fox-style mystery, which it's really not. Now I just want a series of X-Men activity books. I mean, I'm sure there are a bunch of them out there, probably for the from the 90s, and, like, we should find them. Oh, I love the one where Cyclops wants to stop you from having fun. I guess that's not an activity book. That's from the State Fair one. Uh, true, it's an activity within the book, so I think it counts. I would say that that comic is an activity in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's a lot going on in this arc. This is basically the setup for Onslaught and for Gene Nation. Um, There's going to be two major storylines. It's all happening at once, kind of linked around each other. So on the Gene Nation front, uh, Detective Charlotte Jones, this is an NYPG detective whom Angel had been dating on and off, well, Archangel had been dating on and off during his X-Factor days and is still in, in touch with calls Archangel to a crime scene where a cop immediately shoots at him and is promptly downed by a neurotoxic flechette. I have thoughts. Thought number one is that both the blast from what's clearly a shotgun and the shot from Angel's wings both look like big pink laser blasts, possibly the same laser blast deflected. Yeah, I thought it was supposed to be a ricochet at first. I think this may be the writing, if this was indeed written in the Marvel style, where the art comes after the outline and the dialogue comes after the art, I think this may have been an example of uh, Lobdell saying, no, that's not what I meant, and just having the dialogue contradict what is clearly happening on page. That's a trick I'm really not fond of when it's not done for deliberate comedic effect. Agreed, as opposed to accidental comedic effect. Well, or the fun home thing, where it's used to basically underline the cognitive dissonance between the narrative of and the, the behavior of the people in the house and how they talk about it. Ooh, that kind of reminds me of the video game Bastion. I love that game. But one thing I do like about the visual portrayal in this specific page, there's a panel in the corner where Charlotte and Warren are, are talking about what's going on, and 
you don't see police cars in the panel, but you do see red lights irregularly reflected off both of their faces coming from the left side of the panel, thus basically setting that Talking Heads panel clearly within the scene we've seen before. It's a really nice touch. Yeah, that's really good light sourcing, and it's really good use of color as a narrative element. I mean, a, a drum that I will beat for all time is that colorists are artists, and in a good comic and color as much of the storytelling comes from the color as the line art. This is a pretty good example of one of the ways that can work more concretely. Speaking of color, Warren is now in the blue and white version of his mid-90s costume as opposed to the red and white version, thus giving me more and more ammunition for why it's completely reasonable that I totally forgot there was a red version when I talked about it a few episodes ago. One of the things that kind of cracks me up about this version and, and you know, narrative roles of colors is that it's colored a range of blues depending on the lighting and depending on the colors and depending on the issue. And when it's colored just the right shade of blue, it looks like it just has massive cutouts. Oh yeah, sort of like how Jean Grey's 90s costume, if the yellow parts are colored more like her skin tone, just makes it look like she has a super skimpy swimsuit on. But enormous shoulders. Enormous shoulders. That's where she keeps her telekinesis. And Charlotte's... And, and Charlotte, you know, as, as, as Warren complains about the situation and that, you know, it's the first time she's called him for forever, just shuts him down with a really good one-liner. Get over yourself, Warren. I did. Because he has been ignoring her for months. I love it when comics acknowledge that writers forgetting about characters, and thus the characters in the books forgetting about those characters, would really piss those characters off. Uh, I, my favorite example of that, of course, is when Farron, the wizard, com comes back in the last issue of Excalibur to try to kill everybody because he was written out of the book and nobody even mentioned it. Aw, oh, poor guy. I feel for Farron so much more... Now that we've started associated him, associating him with Peridot from Steven Universe. Oh yeah, totally. Anyway, um, on a less cheerful note, the dance club to which Charlotte has called Warren is the site of a massacre. Evidence points to a mutant on human bias crime, and Charlotte is bringing Warren in to consult, but also as a courtesy to give him advance warning. There's no way they can keep something this big out of the press, and things are going to get a lot worse for mutants. So Charlotte Jones is being a little more courteous than the other X-Factor girlfriend we saw recently, Trish Tilby, who didn't give Beast a heads up that she was going to report on the legacy virus being transmissible to humans. Yeah, Trish is the worst. There's a brief scene in this arc where she and Beast have an argument that we're just skipping because it's the same argument they always have. But man, like, she just never really develops beyond that. I mean, to be fair, I think Beast does turn into a petty jerk when he's around her as well. I'm not going to put all of that blame on her. Oh yeah, they're horrible for each other, but she's horrible in, in ways that involve irresponsible news reporting to a national audience, which really pisses me off in ways that Hank just being kind of petty doesn't. Later on, he totally wrecks the time stream. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about that one. Anyway, that's what's going on at the nightclub massacre. What's going on back at the X-Mansion? Back at the X-Mansion, Storm is taking a shower... Um, outside in the rain, as she does, but she's sort of wearing clothes this time, but only sort of. And I, for one, am a little bit confused. You remember when she used to just do this in the hallways and be like, fuck you, I'm going to leave puddles everywhere, and I'm definitely naked? Yeah, all the freaking time. It was kind of great, I, I think. It's hard to really know what to think of that. The impression I got with this one is that she's actually uh, creating a an area of like clear weather right above herself, sort of like a mutant power umbrella while the rest of the area is raining. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell what's going on. Oh, I thought that her 
her dress or her like her flimsy sort of whatever she's wearing was soaked. Maybe it's just supposed to be sheer. Soaked? Sheer? Who can say? Anyway, um, Logan might be able to say, because he is, as he does, lurking in the bushes to pop out and have an angsty conversation with her. I love that he does this during this era. Like, he just comes, he just, like, pops out of the bushes periodically. Well, and one of the things I've been noting, like, reading all these books one after another after another, instead of having to wait a month between issues, is that every time he appears, roughly, his costume is more and more ripped up, which implies to me that he hasn't been changing his clothes for this entire time, which implies to me that he must smell awful. Well, maybe he's been washing them periodically, but he just gets in a lot of fights with the bushes. That that could be. I I feel very strongly that if this were a sitcom, Logan would have his own, like, chord that played when he showed up every time. Like, oh, Sam man. and Clarissa explains it all with the ladder. What would Logan sound like? I mean, no, it would it would just be like a... a... Yeah, okay, I, I can accept that. So we'll get back to Storm and Logan later, because that's going to factor into a plot line that we'll, uh, we'll come back to. But let's check in with some more characters. Let's see what's going on in Hoboken. Yeah, we're kind of getting a general status quo this issue um, for all the stuff that's going to break horribly later. And I kind of like that. I like that after a major event like the Age of Apocalypse and a book like X-Men Prime that followed it up that was checking in with so many people that you couldn't get much in the way of time to catch your breath. I like that we get an uncanny quiet issue after all of that, just to kind of reestablish the status quo and see what everyone's up to. That makes sense, because X-Men was really focused on, on the fall of the Acolytes. Exactly. So... This part worries me. This is this is one of the many terrible decisions of Hank McCoy. This is an only moderately terrible one. Bishop has been having Age of Apocalypse flashbacks and attacking people, and Hank has decided that the best way to get Bishop to wind down is to take him to Hoboken, New Jersey, to see Pulp Fiction. I mean, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, but it's not really the kind of movie that makes you, like, less jumpy and paranoid. Good point. Anyway, their post-movie musings are interrupted by Juggernaut falling out of the sky and crash-landing unconscious. They find him, they start to revive him with Psylocke's help, but as he comes to, he starts a fight with them again. He's not actually trying to hurt them. He doesn't want to be captured. He thinks there's someone coming for him. He just keeps on saying, you know, he's gonna find me, he's gonna find me, and... Bishop finally, finally is able to take Juggernaut down because he's significantly weakened, having been basically thrown to Earth through the atmosphere by electrocuting him with those really enormous um, kind of dryer tube looking electrical cables that are just everywhere in the 90s. As an information technology professional, I can confirm that sure, whatever. Like they weren't, though, were they? I don't think so. Like they, they look like the things that Havoc was was tied up in in back in, in X Factor on the boat with Fatal. I mean, we know the Marvel Universe is different from our world in a number of different ways, and maybe one of those ways is that there's a surplus of dryer tubes. Or weird metal-looking insulation? Anyway, Psylocke also is able to psychic knife him through his helmet. I assume that once again it's just because he's so messed up. Okay, like, like his helmet is cracked from getting punched across the hemisphere, and so she like sort of crams her knife into a crack in it? Or something, or it's otherwise damaged, because we know that whatever's taken him down has to be something tre tremendously powerful. And in fact, we get its name from him for the first time in the last line of this issue. Onslaught. So, this is 
an arc that bugs me because it's an arc that's doing a Claremont thing, but not doing it well. Because in, in lead-ins to events, you'd see Claremont like juggling three teams and three storylines and arcs as as action rose and escalated on multiple sides at once. And you'd have a lot of those quick cuts. This is doing that same thing, but without the level of coordination. Part of it is that while Chris Claremont and I think later writers like Nicieza were all about planting those seeds and knowing where things were going to go, or at least the vague direction that things were going to go when they were starting to write plot threads, Scott Lobdell, that wasn't really his style. He would just sort of write stuff and then come up with an explanation for it later. And we really, really see that to the story's detriment with Onslaught. Rumor has it, and I don't have confirmation for this, that he actually didn't even know what Onslaught was at this point. He just knew he was going to be a real badass, so having him punch Juggernaut from Canada to New Jersey was a good way to show that. You think he was originally supposed to be the Owl? He was probably originally supposed to be the Owl. Owl-slot. Just rolls off the tongue. I love the idea that every vague villain could have been the Owl. I I would have much more affection for the Owl if I hadn't been reading recent Daredevil and come to totally hate that villain because he does some heinous things. Oh yeah, he's a really, really terrible person. Um, for those of you who, who, who didn't listen to early X-Factor coverage, the character who became Apocalypse was originally supposed to be the Daredevil villain, the Owl. Yeah, it was definitely to Louise Simonson's credit that when she took over the book, she said, maybe the nemesis of this new team should be somebody a little more impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the owl is a really terrible person, but he's not really grand in scope. It's true. So that onslaught reveal was the end of the issue, but we do have a couple of other plot threads going on in this one. Right. Now, we know a little bit of what Scott and Jean, Cyclops and Phoenix have been up to because they're at the center of the X-Men plot um, into which they get plucked out from this one. Specifically, they are in Annandale on Hudson having a really awkward conversation with Jean's parents. It's the first time that she's seen them since her sister Sarah was killed by the phalanx, and she's got to explain to their parents what happened. Um, And to her parents' credit, they are remarkably, remarkably sanguine and supportive about all of this. It's definitely better than the time she showed up as Dark Phoenix and they were like, I abjure you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that didn't work out very well, so maybe they they learned a lesson from that whole thing. I really appreciate when characters respond to events that should be big deals to them on page. That's really nice to see the fact that these characters are mourning Jean's sister. I mean, Sarah was never on page very much, but, like, originally she was supposed to be the fifth member of X-Factor when Claremont wanted Jean to stay dead. There was that one time she got turned into a mermaid by Atuma the Jerk and that, uh, that one shot we covered a while back. Man, that was a thing. Sure was. But yeah, I remember when we were doing our last Adjectiveless X-Men episode, we talked about how much it sucked that you know nobody mourned Rusty Collins, even though he had been a big deal to ma- many of the characters who were there. So I like that we at least get to see this. Rusty is still alive, at least in, in this scene. He, he hasn't died quite yet, because Scott and Jean are in space for that. Um, well, he's about to. But... What happens to Sarah is also kind of a preview of what's going to happen to the entire rest of the Grey family. They will also be collateral damage to an event, although one in the far future. So an interesting side note to this, um, we talked a lot about Scott and Jean's relationship and about, you know, characters who leave and come back to the team. And during this era, they talk a lot about that because they've just gotten married. And it's almost always Scott who initiates the wistful ever imagine, you know, just being people for a while conversations while Gina's like, superheroes is who we are. And 
I like that that's a consistent aspect of their dynamic. And it's one that gets forgotten a lot because Scott is the one who's sort of considered the one who really derives his identity from the X-Men. But Jean is the really the one for whom being a hero is, is fundamental and being a superhero is fundamental to who she is and to what she wants to be and wants to be doing with her life. Yeah, I think the impression that I get, at least, is that sometimes being a superhero gets in the way of Cyclops developing his own identity, and for Jean, being a superhero is just an integrated part of her identity. Well, Jean also got to leave for a pretty long time early in adulthood. Admittedly, the Phoenix thing came out of that, but, like, she moved out of the mansion and she was going back to school, um, or she was, she, was, she was in college, she was doing her own thing for a fairly long time, and for a, a chunk of the, the Bronze Age as well. And Scott's never really had that. I'm, I'm thinking about this really presently because I've, I've been doing press for, um, for X-Men Marvel Snapshot, which is about, you know, well, it's not about Cyclops, it's about Scott, but long before he's Cyclops, but kind of examining the idea of what superheroes are and what they do, and how that sort of interacts with his sense of self, long, long before he, he you know, even considers the possibility of being one. So that's that's been just sort of front and center in my mind, and the exact arc of that, and this is sort of an interesting detail in context of that. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention, and it's Mostly we're talking about big plot elements here, but this is a hanging thread that's never going to go anywhere. But I want to talk about it anyway because it's a weird hanging thread. So while Scott and Jean are at Jean's house, as they're leaving, they are being followed by an apparently intangible and invisible narrator in a suit. And he's talking about, he, he closes the issue with like a page of exposition. Um... Allegedly, this is this is a guy named Noah Dubois. He is Senator Kelly's mutant aide, and he actually works for Landell Luckman and Lake, who are a weird interdimensional law firm who take care of Wolverine's stuff when he's out of town. This was supposed to go somewhere, and it absolutely did not. Well, I mean, Dubois does show up, uh, I think, pretty soon after this, or maybe at around this time exactly, in Wolverine's solo book. I just read that in my uh, my ultra-marathon of Wolverine issues. So it's not like the character's forgotten, but he doesn't really interact with the X-Men other than Logan. And he also interacts with Deadpool, but as we know, Deadpool is not an X-Man. But he also narrates the end of, of this bit of the issue like he's closing captions. Like, he sounds like... Not, not exactly the Watcher in X-Men 137, but it's the same type of, like, observation and musing. And it's a very, very weird detail to just sort of have thrown in and then never resolve. Behold the mid-90s. This sort of thing happened a lot. And that takes us to Uncanny X-Men number 323, A Nation Rising. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Steve Bucolato and Electric Cran, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, hey, Brian Hitch, he's going to do uh, the Ultimates later, which means he's basically the artist who's responsible for the look of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I like Hitch a lot, and one of the things I really like about him is not always, but sometimes and very intensely, the way he draws faces and hands when people are gesturing reminds me of Pio Guerra. Yeah, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. So, like the last issue, and like a lot of X-Men in this era, we're going to be juggling multiple plot lines. So let's start with the one that stuck with me most, because I think this may have been my last issue of Uncanny before I stopped reading comics. Let's start with Rogue and Iceman, and some truly excellent opening narration. Somewhere between here and there. If you're going to start a road trip scene, that is the exact set of words to use to start it. 
So, Rogue and Iceman have left the X-Men after Rogue absorbed Gambit's memories and got all fucked up, and Iceman was worried about his friend. They are broken down by the side of the road with a flat, and a very hot day. Iceman, who is is not an entirely willing passenger here, it was really Rogue who left the X, X-Men, and Iceman basically tagged along because he was justly worried that she was going to harm herself or someone else, and has been trying to to be the angel on her shoulder and also, you know, the the relatively practical individual on her shoulder and say things like, we should have a spare tire if we're driving through the desert, which Rogue insisted they did not, and that's why they're stuck by the side of the road now. Well, no, it's even better. They did have a spare tire, and then they got a flat and used it, and then they didn't get another, even though Iceman wanted them to do so. I am 100% on Iceman's side in this argument. Oh yeah, absolutely. But Rogue isn't worried, and she also won't let either of them use their powers to get to civilization, so it's time for a long walk. I really like Stick in the Mud Iceman and Adventure Gal Rogue hanging out. They're such a delightful odd couple. I really like Rogue's arbitrary and intensely specific rules for this trip. I think that they're a really good reflection of her state of mind and what's going on, and they seem arbitrary and they seem silly, but they also feel like her grasping for some form of control. Yeah, which makes perfect sense given, you know, what recently happened and her entire history. But let's talk about the first page, because that is what I mainly remember from this issue. It's 100% a pinup, but the thing is, it's like a really good pinup. One of the things I really dig about Hitch is that he can do sexy without sucking away plot and personality and just have it be a component of character and pose and characterization. But, but man, for 14-year-old me, the sexy was the relevant part. Yeah, it's a pinup page. It's totally a pinup page. It's the kind of thing you tear out and, like, put on your wall and gets, you know, worn out and folded up and shoved under mattresses and stuff over the years. <laughs> well, I don't know about that part, but, like, yeah, Rogue is in cowboy boots and Daisy Dukes in a tiny shirt. She's leaning back against their car, drinking a bottle of water. And, like, uh, that was formative for me, I'll just go ahead and say. And I think it works, though, because when Rogue is messed up, sexiness is something that she falls back on. That's something that she can control about her body and her life, even when her powers and her trauma don't let her do so otherwise. Well, and she's in a couple times in this issue, like she'll pause in very pinuppy poses, but in ways and contexts where it's it seems clear to me that she's posing like that's part of what she's doing and how she's playing this road trip. And Again, I think it works really well for the character at this point. I completely agree, yeah. And that's the thing, like, there's nothing wrong with characters being sexy. That's totally fine as long as it fits the plot. So with a character like Rogue uh, deliberately being very sexy, or say, Emma Frost, like, that's just part of who they are, at least sometimes. In all fairness, Iceman does spend a lot of this arc shirtless and damp. He does. It's true. It's true. I, I guess Rogue was more my type. I mean, well, Rogue's I guess, also wearing brighter colors and tends to be positioned more centrally and as the focus of panels. Much brighter plumage. And also really amazing hair. Like, Hitch does the 90s mane really well. Yeah. So Rogue is, has, has, has a bunch of Gambit's memories, memories in her head, but she's not the only one here who's haunted by something. Right, because speaking of Emma Frost, Bobby keeps hallucinating Emma. Remember, Emma Frost took over Iceman's body for a little while when she came back from her coma. She basically possessed him and used his powers in ways that he never thought were possible. He's been pretty screwed up over that, especially since, you know, after he came to her for help finding himself, she just sort of gave him two middle fingers and stuck her tongue out. Well, and 
her, you know, hallucinatory or hallucinated self pretty much does the same. She's in general, very Caprica six. Oh man, she totally is. That's a great parallel from Battlestar Galactica. Thank you. I, I should also point out that at, at at least one point in this arc, Iceman calls himself the Bobster, for which I will retroactively say he deserves everything that happens to him here. Totally in character, though, which means I guess it's totally in character that he deserves everything that happens to him. I mean, it's just getting stranded in the desert and then having an awkward conversation at a bar. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be an X-Men issue without at least some reference to the Danger Room, though, and that's where Psylocke and Archangel are. This is the Danger Room in one of my favorite incarnations, where it's just sort of this incoherent jungle gym with a bunch of laser drones all around. Uh, we've certainly seen Nightcrawler swing around that version of the Danger Room before. And this is the point where I am going to take issue with Hitch's art and his pinupier art, because holy shit am I concerned about Psylocke, because her body has very clearly been severed at the waist with the two halves separated by at least six to eight inches based on the way she's drawn in this panel. Like, it's not subtle. I'm just going to assume that's part of what happened to her in Spiral's body shop with the whole body transformation thing. She can just do that now. She looks like an action figure where you've twisted half of the body around too far. And it's really unfortunate. And it's one of those points where, like, look, there are ways if you're a sufficiently stylized artist to draw tits and ass on the same person in the same image. It's theoretically possible. You can you can make it look deliberate. If you are an artist who does fairly realistic, even comics realistic bodies, don't do that because it just, it kills the storytelling because again, you get situations like this where it looks like someone has been cut in two. So that kind of reminds me, I mentioned I've been reading through Wolverine in one of the early uh, Frank Thierry issues of Wolverine. Uh, Wolverine fights two sexy female assassins who are respectively named T and A. And uh, Jesus, that tells us a lot about that run, honestly. That's really unfortunate. And this is this is, again, the very specific distinction between why the rogue stuff works and this doesn't, because for rogue, the sexy pinuppy stuff is reasonably in character and fits the narrative. She's around enough that, again, it's part of the story for Psylocke here. I mean, she's in the middle of the of a fight. It doesn't it, it it's gratuitous. It's not only gratuitous, but it's working at direct odds with the story. Mm, totally, totally. Well, they don't have too much time to uh, ponder what the fact that her spine uh, got snapped in half might mean for their relationship, because Gambit suddenly, fresh from his coma, blows open the door like he's an acolyte interrupting Rusty and Skid's sexy time. He has at least somewhat recovered, albeit not for very long, he falls over again soon. But what's interesting here is that Psylocke sensed danger from him telepathically, and she's not used to sensing danger from Gambit even when he randomly blows open walls, which I can only assume he does a lot. The only no-prize explanation I can offer here is that way back in the day, way back when she was just a minor Captain Britain character, uh, Betsy had precognitive powers, so maybe that's related. Really, though, it's just planting the seeds for the upcoming Gambit has a darker past than we thought storyline. Oh, I've got a much simpler no-prize explanation for almost everything of that sort that happens around now. Oh, yeah? Which is that Onslaught is messing with everyone's psychic readings. Like, everything's just thrown way off. I feel like if we have technical difficulties or our schedule gets messed up uh, around this era, we can just blame it all on Onslaught. Seems reasonable. Outside the mansion, Cannonball is taking Sabretooth for a walk on a leash, which... Okay? 
No, no, I, 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 I am familiar with OK, and I don't think this is it. That's probably true. But it's a weird scene. Not only is Sam using his blasting power to keep up with Sabretooth, which must mean that Sabretooth is going really fast, but Sam seems way, way over his head. He keeps calling Sabretooth Sir and thinking about giving him Scooby Snacks. Okay. First of all, I, I, God, I have so much, I have, I have so many problems with this scene, but the first one is that it is so wildly unsafe to have a person running in front of you on a leash attached to an apparently rigid collar. Like, that is not okay to do. You don't want to do that with a puppy. You don't want to, you don't want to do that with anything because the front of the neck is where, like, the important stuff is. I mean, there's important stuff in the back, too, but, um... My, my point here is don't do that. Well, right. And also, we know Sabretooth is like a cat person, and cats have really weak necks. That's why you should only put them in torso harnesses. And so now I'm just imagining, like, Cannonball uh, with a leash and Sabretooth in one of those torso harnesses, and Cannonball just dragging the entirely limp Sabretooth across the yard because Sabretooth does not want to have any part in taking walks. Okay, I love this idea. Um, but we know that Sabretooth is running fast enough ahead of Sam that, like, the leash is taut. And what I don't understand is how he doesn't choke himself out. I, I don't know. I think the only answer I have is, well, it's the 90s. It's really upsetting. That said, okay, I know I was just complaining mere moments ago about Cannonball, despite his level of experience acting so in over his head. But it does make sense on some level. Like, I'm thinking about when I go back to my hometown in Florida. Like, I'm 38. I'm coming up on 40. But I go back there, and in some ways, I revert to the way I interacted with my family and the people around me, like, when I was a teenager. I think that's normal. When you, uh, you know, go back to where you were a kid, you start acting like a kid. And Sam was a kid at the Xavier Institute. So this is—I this. I, want to go back a second. Are you just planning on skipping 39 completely? No, no, no. I'll, I'll turn 39. It's just that 40 is a bit of a— Spectre, and, um, it's something I think about a lot these days. Mark Spectre, or like the Spectre who comes and punishes you as a ghost? Oh, uh, let's go for Mark Spectre. I kind of like Moon Knights, and Kevin used to draw him. Yeah, it's a reasonable choice. Also, Marvel's so closer to our bailiwick. And that's true. So, we see Sam in his X-Men uniform for, I want to say, the first time here, and it's very, very similar to Cyclops' uniform, but the chest harness is symmetrical rather than the sort of uh, letter Y that Cyclops wears. Maybe it was what he was supposed to be walking Sabretooth in, but he was like, that looks like part of my uniform, and got confused and put it on himself. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that, that could work. What do we think about this? What do we think about Cannonball wearing the 90s equivalent of the old black and yellow training uniform. Like, this is one of the more generic X-Men uniforms I can think of. I think this is an era where the X-Men end up dressed kind of generically a lot of the time, where there's clearly, like, a house look, which is is pouches and eventually a leather jacket. And, you know, Sam's basically going to be sporting that. I think part of the issue here is that Sam doesn't really have a distinctive identity on the X-Men yet, and putting him in a, in a more derivative uniform kind of establishes him as the trainee of the team. Yeah, which, uh, there's certainly a lot to be said about that. I mean, Sam's been through a whole lot of dark shit. The other thing with the Sabretooth situation that I think is worth pointing out is that he is way out of his depth here. Like, this is a situation where he is taking a person for a walk on a leash— and this person is someone who every encounter he's previously had with before you know, has been someone who could and 
absolutely would kill him with no hesitation, and also a lot of other people. Like someone who is incredibly dangerous and incredibly out of Sam's fight class. But who is now basically like, again, a friendly kitten. Like, if I were Sam, I would not really quite know how to react to this situation either. I suppose that's reasonable. Well, one person who does know how to react is, once again, Logan, presumably smelling just a little bit worse than last issue. He threatens Sabretooth some more, and Cannonball stands up to him, basically saying, hey, I'm supposed to be taking care of this guy, you can't kill him, be a better X-Man, what the hell? Which impresses Wolverine, as it well should. I mean, Cannonball, he's a proper kid, he always tries to be polite, but he doesn't take shit from people when he knows he needs to do the right thing. Even the angry man who lives in the bushes. Even the angry, stinky man who lives in the bushes. Thankfully, Storm shows up pretty quickly and presumably uses her wind powers to, like, shunt the smell in a different direction, because Storm herself has been contacted by Charlotte Jones, Archangel's ex-girlfriend. And, man, I love Charlotte Jones. She's really, really sensible, and she calls the X-Men in at appropriate times to consult on stuff that's way above her pay grade. In this case, she's concerned that specifically that the killings at the Disco are going to lead to massive anti-mutant sentiment, as she tells Storm. There's a fire about to rage across the country. This may be our only chance to keep the sparks from igniting the flame. So to do that, they need to find the perps. So they head to a coroner who tells them that there was no cause of death for any of the 33 people who died in the nightclub. They just stopped. Now... This guy is lying, and Wolverine is able to sniff that out and do what he does when he sniffs something that smells wrong and immediately stab him. I really wish he didn't do that. Like, that, that just worries me every time. I know, right? Because, like, if he's wrong one time, it's going to go super badly. But in this case, he's totally right, because inside this mild-mannered coroner is a glowing, gooey skeleton man. This is a guy named Sack, and this is troubling. Okay, Sack is a terrible name. He looks like a sort of skinny blue proto-glob Herman. I was thinking of him uh, based on being blue and naked as Dr. Bone Hatton. Don't, please don't ever say that again. I mean, I don't think the character is going to show up much no, more after this. don't, don't, say, but, but like, never again. Can, can we just get an official moratorium on you calling anything what you just called Zach? I suppose it'll have to just be immortalized for the internet for all time. Internet, if you're going to repress something, now's a good time. Well, anyway, with that character, as always, is Garth. I mean, uh, this other guy, Vessel, who's like a manga swamp thing, basically. So, okay, Sack dives inside people's bodies, and that kills them, but it allows him to take their bodies over. I don't know how that works. Is he intangible? Does he just, like, you know, skeleton his way in? Who knows? And Vessel's power is maybe even weirder. He absorbs the souls of the recently departed in order to just power himself up. That is very specific. You want a weird bit of sack trivia? That's a sentence I've really not heard many times. Well, see, okay, so there are a number of types. You can get burlap, you can get flower sacks. No, um, anyway, see, I did not take that in the direction you thought I would, did I? No, you didn't. Anyway, but no, this is, this is trivia about the character sack. Um, so remember... M-Day, when the Scarlet Witch depowered almost all of the mutants and there were only 98 left and most of them were, like, major characters. Was Sack one of the ones to keep his powers? He was. Yeah, he was one of the 198. Well, I don't feel good about that. 
Yeah, I, I don't think anyone else really did either. What I also don't feel good about is how nonsensical Sack's plan was. Like, what did he have to gain by telling the X-Men that the people just keeled over for no reason in the club when clearly they were all torn apart and clearly that was because these characters wanted to, like, send a message to humanity? Yeah, but they didn't want to get caught immediately. Like, they wanted to confuse the X-Men. I assume that they're just trying to give them give them mismatched leads so that they don't know where to look next or so that they don't immediately go to the Gene Nation. But no, these guys have a specific plan, and their plan is to kill 100 humans for every mutant killed in the Mutant Massacre, which is sort of weird because the perpetrators of the Mutant Massacre were the Marauders, who are mutants. Wait, was it everyone killed in the Mutant Massacre or just every mutant killed, period? I always thought it was the second one. So I think their plan is to kill... A hundred humans for every Morlock killed. And I was thinking that that kind of didn't make sense because most of the Morlocks we've seen killed in the comics have been killed by other mutants, as in the Mutant Massacre and, you know, Mikhail Rasputin apparently wiping them all out. But then I realized that, like, that's a byproduct of the fact that the Morlocks have been forced into this marginalized position by humanity. So while I, I still don't think killing a hundred humans for every Morlock killed is a good plan, um, I do kind of get why they're going after humanity for it. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, you know, honestly, good villains in stories, their motivation should make some level of sense, and these guys kind of do. I wish that there'd been a third team, mem team member who also had a container name. I think that would have rounded them out really well. Oh, so like uh, Vessel, Sack, and Geodesic Dome? No, no, that's, that, that's more of an over-container. Maybe like Tupperware or Belljar. Okay, it could be a team of four, even. I guess bell jars go over things, too, but still, it sounds cool, and you could make it be a Sylvia Plath reference. We'll get back to the container crew later, but for now, there is one more subplot going on in this issue, and that is in downtown New York City, where Graydon Creed, the anti-mutant bigoted human leader of the anti-mutant bigoted group, the Friends of Humanity, is giving a very politician-smelling speech about how something needs to be done about the mutants. Think of the children. Because, of course, this presumed mutant-on-human bias crime is a lot of ammunition for the anti-mutant crowd. And you know who's there in the crowd is, again, Noah Dubois. And I'm pretty sure he's the same guy. He's not wearing the same outfit, but he's got the same face, he's got the same hair, and he's standing an odd angle to the crowd, which at least implies that they can't see or interact with him, because if they could, it wouldn't really make sense for him to be there, and he would be getting sort of pushed out of the way. And he talks about how he's worried because this Graydon Creed guy is getting more and more public support, just like a house painter from Berlin that he remembers. Did Noah Dubois just Godwin this entire issue? You know, I think Godwin's law actually ceased to be applicable in late 2016. So... While this predates that significantly, A, this guy implies that he might be from the future anyway, and he's from Lanto, Luckman, and Lake, so we really don't know that he's not. And B, I mean, Graydon Creed is running on a platform of basically eugenics, so it's an apt analogy. It's not, you know, being brought up out of nowhere because someone's upset that, like, there aren't enough boobs in a video game. Okay, Noah Dubois, I apologize, your metaphor is apt. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 324, Deadly Messengers. This is written by, again, Scott Lobdell, penciled by Roger Cruz, inked by Townsend, Russell, and Milgram, the colors by Steve Buclato and Electric Crayon, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And, you know, I just kind of want to gloss this one, because this entire issue feels pointless. It's filler, it's weirdly, weirdly scattered filler, as we sort of kill time before the big events. And like I mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing Claremont used to do regularly, but much more meticulously. And this is, this is just, it's 
scattered, um, scrambled, and the stuff that isn't climactic fights feels weirdly overhyped based on the way it's balanced with them. Like, for example, the issue ends super portentously with Emma Frost evilly letting Iceman's attempt to call and get a ride go to voicemail. (laughs) Yeah, it, it doesn't really land the way it's clearly intended to. That said, I do think there are some important things to bring up. I mean, okay, not important, but fun. Okay, not fun, but but fun to talk about. So let's at least briefly touch on some of them, okay? Follow your heart, Miles. I will. So there's a scene where Rogue, on her road trip with Iceman, heads into a bar. And basically the gist of it is that Rogue has some of Gambit's memories. But I really love this scene, and part of that is the opening narration. Millstone, Arizona. Population? Not a lot. Local attraction? Not much. Mayor? Whoever answers the phone first. Two colorless mana and tap? Target player puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. See what you did there. Yeah. But this is a weird scene. Basically... uh, Rogue and Iceman go in and everyone looks at Rogue because she's being all sexy-like. What we find in this diner is that Rogue has some of Gambit's memories because she tells the waitress to say hi to Grey Crow, who apparently Gambit used to know when, based on a photograph, we see that he worked here with the waitress and Grey Crow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know who a Grey Crow is. That's Scalp Hunter from the, from the Marauders, right? Exactly, and I think this is supposed to establish a link between Gambit and the Marauders, since his big sin that everyone's trying to figure out, that he's trying to keep secret, is that he organized the Marauders before the Mutant Massacre. Also, I would like to point out that these days Scalp Hunter is mostly going by Grey Crow in the Hellions, and that's probably a good idea. There are a a lot of reasons to not use the name Scalp Hunter for somebody. Yeah, yeah, there really, really are. Yeah, don't do that, that's really racist. But, um... Also, I, I like that he's he's picked up the 90s tradition of having your last name be your codename. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good way to keep your uh, your identity secret. But what this scene mainly does for me is it makes me want to see a sitcom of Gambit, this waitress whose name is Claire Luke, which reminds me of Claire DeLune, and Scalp Hunter all just, like, running a diner, and every issue something wacky happens, and there's kind of a love triangle, and it's just silly. And then there's a cord, and Wolverine just pops out of the bushes. And the audience applauds because it's filmed before a live studio audience. Wow, this is going some places. Like onslaught, the si- I like this onslaught the sitcom situation. I think we can do something with this. I'm just saying, but we should check back in with the container crew because that's the bulk of this issue. And I can sum it up in one sentence: Storm, Wolverine, and Cannonball take out Sack and Vessel, but such that they'll clearly be back later. Yeah, pretty much. The only part I want to comment on here is that at one point, Vessel gets killed or mostly killed or something, and all the souls go back to the corpses they were from. Yeah, that's weird. Well, what's weirder is that the narration specifically says the souls are going back to the morgue, but the picture we see is this, like, dusty rubble heap full of naked corpses in disarray with a nightclub sign out front. So... Was this actually supposed to be the nightclub, based on what Roger Cruz understood of the scene? Or is this just an incredibly unprofessional morgue? So my rough read on that was that maybe, like, the the, the spirits or the souls of, of those people were somehow, like, trapped in the scene of their death. Or possibly he had also attacked another disco somewhere else. Maybe. Oh, and, like, the souls went back to the wrong corpses? They were confused? Maybe the functional limbo in this context is 
the outside of a disco. Maybe this is like, maybe it's a metaphorical disco and that's just where, you know, soulless spirits hover. I'm really, I'm pushing this way too far. Let's, let's, let's go with the worst morgue ever. Worst morgue ever. Our next one will be better. Miles, I just realized something. What's that? We found a, dis- a disco more disreputable than the one the X-Men found Dazzler in. Oh, with all of the very, very evil people that Claremont told us about? Yes! Excellent. Well, the 90s are good for something. Okay, they're good for a lot of things. And this is one of them. Alright, so... Uh, Wolverine's struggling with his increasingly feral nature. Psylocke has poor te- telepathic boundaries and inexplicably psychically cosplays Azrael Batman... Okay, so that is one of my favorite Psylocke looks. She is in her Lady Mandarin armor from right after she got transformed after the whole Siege Perilous thing. Uh, That was Uncanny number 256, I want to say, when it first showed up. Uh, But that was actually more than two years before Asriel showed up in DC. So if those armors are linked, Lady Mandarins happened first. Okay, but it's still a really Bat Family look, and it's not in our colors. Uh, True. Well, it's in silver and blue. That's... Kind of like the color she was wearing in that one annual where she turned into a metal lady. I do not dig it. I think if it were purple and I think if the armor were more stylized and less sort of like 90s cybery, I might like it. But here it just looks like she borrowed some some armor from the DCU. Well, I guess. But anyway, the context for this is that she is telepathically uh, invading Gambit's mind, essentially, trying to figure out why she's been so creeped out by him. She learns nothing useful, and finally, to close the issue with a portentous moment again, Emma Frost ignores the phone. Hooray! So those are our first three uncanny issues back from the Age of Apocalypse. It's mostly some small plots that are setting things up for later. I don't think that's inherently bad, although, Jay, as you observed, that works certainly better in the first two issues than in the third. I don't know if I'd call them small plots. I think that implies the degree of organization that I'm not sure is present here. That may and be intention. <laughs> yeah, well... But we are getting ever, ever closer to the glorious incoherence that is Onslaught. But in the meantime, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, While discussing the OG X-Men's family with my brother, I realized I know very little about Hank McCoy's family. Why do you think his family history receives less attention than the other four? And are there issues I missed that go into the McCoy family? So... There's not a lot that goes into the McCoy family. We've seen them very, very little. Hank's gone back to visit them a couple times, but really that's about it. And there are a couple reasons they haven't appeared much on panel. The first is that they're largely removed from the story in ways that, for instance, Gene's family isn't. Um, And, you know, Cyclops' family doesn't exist and so on and so forth. And we don't really see Bobby's that much either. Like, they show up occasionally and are jerks, but that's about it. So... Edna and Norton McCoy um, are basically regular people. Norton worked at a nuclear power plant and was exposed to a bunch of radiation, which at least per their introduction in X-Men number 15, uh, whose backup story was Hank's origin, was why Hank was a mutant. Uh, Your mileage may vary with that now. During the Silver Age, a lot of people's mutations were specifically traced to their parents being exposed to radiation. But shortly after that... (laughs) Um, and this is, this is one of the reasons you don't see them a lot, or you didn't see them a lot for a very long time. Um, Professor X literally made them forget that Hank existed for a really long time, like years and years. It was not cool. Wait, was that after the conquistador kidnapped Hank's parents to use his leverage to make Hank do crimes? It was. 
Oh man, that was a story. Well, they'll actually show up again pretty soon in our coverage when Dark Beast takes Normal Beast's identity, and one of the plot threads is him debating whether to kill Edna and Norton. He doesn't. They're not plot significant enough. I guess so. Also, like, they're his parents too, so he, he, he kind of would feel bad. Even Dark Beast has a heart. A tiny, tiny, shriveled heart. I'd say he probably has dozens of hearts. Like, he's the kind of guy who keeps souvenirs. <laughs> Valid point. Siobhan Romy asks on Tumblr, has Rogue ever used Colossus's powers? And if so, how would that work? So she has, uh, a few times actually. Um, there was one time when she absorbs Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Shadowcat's powers simultaneously to take on Nimrod, and then way later in Second Coming, she absorbed Colossus, Wolverine, X-23, which is to say better Wolverine, Psylocke, Angel, and Colossus's powers. Weirdly, she mainly tends to absorb Colossus when he's part of like a big collection of powers. Yeah, I remember her doing that to fight Magus too at one point. Uh, oh, did she? Maybe that was the issue I was thinking of, and it wasn't Nimrod. Anyway, it was around the same time. They were both villains at the same time. In both cases, Rogue was permanently in Colossus's metal form, like, in addition to, you know, Nightcrawler's tail and and the other character's claws and stuff like that. Well, or she was, she shifted into it and stayed into it. It's not really covered whether she's in it voluntarily or not, because she's using it at the time. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense that we really only see her with the metal form. Like, presumably she could shift back and forth, because she tends to absorb people's powers pretty exactly. But she's very reluctant to absorb her allies' powers unless the situation is super, super dire and she's in a fight. So why would she not be in the metal form if she absorbed Colossus's powers, if it was worth it to knock him the fuck out? Precedence is that she should be able to shift back and forth, because we know, for instance, that she can control Cyclops' optic blasts when she absorbs them. Uh, very true. So, another interesting bit, in Claremont's return to the X-Line in 2000, Rogue was actually able to touch Colossus while he was in his metal form without knocking him out and absorbing his powers. But that was kind of an outlier most other times that hasn't been the case. Most importantly and most significantly, she absorbed Colossus's powers, and also the injuries he had at the time, after Pyro had partially melted Colossus so that Colossus would shift back into his flesh form and could be medically treated. Oh, I remember that. That was right after she joined the team, right? Exactly, and that specifically was the event that convinced the rest of the team to finally trust her, because she'd come onto the team as a supervillain who had done terrible things to their buddy Carol Danvers. Speaking of Rogue, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and true to this arc and her appearance in it, um, today the mic goes to sexy Rogue and I guess her sexy phonetic accent. That ice man just won't leave me alone about what happened with the swamp rats and my kiss. I know he's as worried as a sinner in church, but come on, Bobby. Don't this little number I'm wearing make you want to change the subject? No. It's like he don't even see what I got on display. He's probably just tired. I can't think of any other explanation. Well, I see I ain't the only one flaunting it in these dark times. I do declare, Noah Rodenbeek, you're showing off as much skin as an elderly ink aficionado at a tattoo convention. Ain't nobody gonna be ignoring you, my sexy friend. And JT's get up is turning heads like an overenthusiastic chiropractor. I don't see anybody trying to make you talk out your feelings, JT. Mind if I borrow that outfit sometime? Maybe that'll distract Bobby.
And I feel like I should also mention, because it's it's about to come out again, and as I mentioned, I've been doing promo for it, um, the X-Men issue I wrote, X-Men Marvel Snapshot number one, is going to be out for real this time, we think, on September 16th. Um, I believe the final order cutoff will have passed by the time this goes up, but that doesn't mean it's not orderable, it just means it's not guaranteed, so um, tell your comic shop to do that anyway. It's really cool. Jace told me a bunch about it, and it sounds freaking great. I am so excited to read it. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week we'll be back with Hawk Talk, but two weeks from now, well, the kids aren't alright. As we continue our post-Age of Apocalypse tour with Generation X.